0: Hey, it's Mark. It wasn't long ago that the medical marketing world descended on the French Riviera to honor the best campaigns and promotional efforts in farm and wellness on an international basis. Among those bringing home Lions was Dentsu International, which earned the Pharma Lions Grand Prix for scrolling therapy an experimental AI-based app launched for Brazilian pharma company Europharma that aims to help people with Parkinson's slow down the progression of the disease while they scroll through social media. The app, designed to enable users to control their scroll using facial expressions, is another example of the trend of healthcare brands harnessing technology to assist patients with challenging medical conditions. As you may recall, we previously touched on scrolling therapy on the social media segment and reported on it for the website, but this week we're lucky to take a deep dive. My colleague Jack O'Brien spoke with Colette and Douai, Global Chief Creative Officer of Dentsu Health, about the conception and execution of scrolling therapy, what it means for the Parkinson's community, and how it felt to take home the Grand Prix. And she's is here with a health policy update.
1: Hey Mark, today I'll discuss the launch of the federal government's new Office of Long COVID Research and Practice and what that means for long COVID clinical trials, plus an update on the battle in Congress over the drug shortage issue.
0: And Jack, I understand that the summer months haven't exactly brought a lull in healthcare memes. What you got for us this week on the healthcare social media segment?
2: Yeah, our cup runneth over. This week, we're talking about the hashtag fairy flying TikTok trend that's raising concerns about self-harm, the vaccinated meme going around on Instagram and TikTok, and moms lifting newborns out of their wombs during C-sections in a new social media trend.
0: I'm Mark its Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMNM Podcast, medical marketing and media's show about healthcare marketing writ large.
2: Hello, I am Jack O'Brien, the digital editor at MMNM, and I'm pleased to be joined today by Coco Dwaii, the chief creative officer at Dentsu Health. Coco, how are you doing today?
3: Very well. Thank you.
2: I appreciate you being on the show and we're going to really focus the conversation around scrolling therapy. And for those in the audience that may be unaware, I, I would be surprised if anybody in our audience is, can you give us just a quick overview of what scrolling therapy is? and Then we can kind of get into the specifics of how it all came about.
3: Sure. Absolutely. Um, first of all, I'm very excited to be here and talk about this because this this was a, a labor of love um, between Densu creative and densu health it 's really a beautiful, simple idea. It is an app that helps people with facial masking symptoms. Um, who are living with Parkinson's disease. And basically what this app does is allow them to still feel human, to engage in social media, but while engaging in social media is to exercise their facial muscles while they're engaging. And they can actually use their, their face expressions to actually navigate social media, which is amazing, right? So a very Simple app it doesn't necessarily seem seem simple when you think about what it can do, but the idea um, was really allowing people with parkinson's to engage in social media while doing exercises that are typically very daunting
2: and I'm really kind of curious again, I kind of want to get into the origins of how it all came together because when I first heard about scrolling therapy, it was truly like an aha like how did somebody not come up with that idea uh, in the first place and I, I wonder like how how it all came to be in terms of feedback and you know is this the way that we want to present it you know what was that process like
3: internally at densu um collectively we use this term called radical collaboration and it's the first company truly that i've been at that truly practices radical collaboration so i was brought on about a year and a half ago to help launch densu health solutions before there was a true formalized solutions offering And um, how it all came about, which I think is a great story, was really thought through and developed. The idea was developed in Argentina. Um, Then we produced it in the U.S. and then um, final production in Brazil. So, really, it was a global team effort. To think through what were some of the things right out of the gate was we were a brand new team working together. Um, I was new to the team in Argentina, um, vice versa, production in Brazil. We were all coming together, doing introductions, but needing to work together pretty fast. And I thought, what a brilliant turnout that we had, because not knowing each other and having to get in and work so quickly together, we really did work as a team. So, Something like, how did it come about? Health got involved because, of course, I've been doing this now for 24 years, um, health, the focus on health. And we want to make sure that we are approaching, you know, any kind of health initiative in the right way. From a creative perspective, Dentsu Creative was very involved in the original idea. But then we're thinking, how do we make this come to fruition. We have a colleague of ours named Sebastian Porta, who was diagnosed about six years ago with Parkinson's disease. And he was an integral part of this story. I I, I like to say that Seb was the heart of this story and how how it came to life. And he talked very early on, before we even had real pen to paper yet, about the importance of facial masking, and for those who who don't know what facial masking is, is it literally um, freezes your facial muscles, um, and you 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 lose the fundamental right to express yourself, whether that be laughing or crying or being surprised. And Seb talked about in a way that he said he didn't know much about it and his doctor mentioned it to him. And as he started talking around, a lot of people didn't realize that, you know, there were exercises, but for the people who did, it was very daunting. You have to go through 45 minutes of standing in the mirror to do these facial exercises. It's very lonely. Um, It could be very degrading, make someone feel childish, if you will. And quite frankly, they tap out early. And so there's a huge... um, you know drop off only like 3% i believe it is engage in facial masking exercises so you know the the insights really is not just one the insights that came together early on was talking about how can we use something so simple like facial recognition and or something like the insight of we spend close to two and a half hours a day on our phones and social media swiping. And those conversations kept leading to more ideas of like, could we actually help someone with Parkinson's use their facial exercises as a way to navigate? So as those talks, and you know, I wasn't part of those early talks, but as those talks took place, we realized that we were onto something very special. And I got introduced to Seb pretty early on and and had a lot of wonderful conversations with him. And all of us so wanted this idea to live. So that's where the radical collaboration came in, understanding that we were all from different disciplines, that we needed to hit the ground running and running fast, if you will. We were trying to make an April deadline for um, Parkinson's awareness disease. So that's truly about how it started out so much more took place thereafter. But I'll let you ask the next question.
2: And I think that kind of leads in, you've brought up a number of very interesting points as it relates to stigmatization, patient adherence, you know, all those sorts of things. I think when it comes to maybe lessons learned going through this process, you talk about being on a tight deadline, doing something that truly hadn't really been seen in the industry before. What sort of lessons stick out to you as a leader where you're like, I I wasn't expecting this when we went into the project, but now in hindsight, that was something that I can take away is oh, this applies to maybe some of the other projects we're going to, you know, embark on down the line.
3: Yeah. And it, it's really a lesson learned isn't necessarily a negative thing, right? So my lesson learned was probably to hit the ground running even faster, right? Mm-hmm. There was a lot of work to be done in technology, Um The lesson learned on a positive thing was we did literally a stand up meeting every single day with the team internally, and we met whether it was it was always a half hour, whether we met for half hour, 15 minutes or it went over. And if some of us couldn't make it, we had each other's backs. We were literally on those meetings every single day talking about what was needed to be done, who's going to own that. We crossed swim lanes, which was amazing as a team, right? I was leading some of the NGO conversations to figure out who was going to, from a client perspective, want to get involved. Um, Also working on creative and copy, even though my background is an art background, we had a lot of that happening. Um, And I think my biggest lesson learned is we could have dove in a little faster into maybe some of the things to talk about the technology of truly how it's going to come together and what was needed for that. But honestly, this was, in the history of my career, the most collaborative, productive, short timeline, and well-produced piece I have ever worked on. So I was blown away by the team's Um, dedication to wanting this to come together. And I think that's the lesson learned. If you're in it to win it, you will.
2: Absolutely. And we'll get to the winning it part because I certainly (laughs) want to follow up on that angle. But as it relates to the actual launch, what was that like? And in terms of maybe stakeholder feedback, I know the Parkinson's community is obviously a very vocal one. You think of the Michael J. Foxes of the world in terms of bringing a big awareness to it. What was that all like once it actually went live?
3: You know, that that's a great question. We had talked with the Michael J. Fox Foundation. We were in early talks with them. Michael was off doing his documentary still, which is a beautiful documentary. Um, You know, he talks about facial masking and things like that. Um, I I would say that um, we just needed more time. You always need more time. Right. But I think getting to launch was really interesting because closer to the date that we needed to go launch, we had reached out to Apple and we weren't getting the responses we needed. We were starting to like, oh my God, how are we going to make that happen? We had already had Google Play on board. So we were racing against the gun to make sure everything was detailed. The technology was also one of our bigger challenges, right? You can do technology and and kind of push it through and make sure, but it has to be seamless, right? That integration for a patient experience has to be flawless. They have to be able to want to interact with it. So we did a lot of testing, testing internally, um, testing to make sure this, um, you know, the app was functioning in the right way. We talked to our patients that are in the film as well to make sure that we were understanding their perspectives, Um, reaching out to all of the NGOs across the globe Everybody really loved this idea. I think it was the shortness of time that we were able to get more people on board right out of the gate, but we're still working on that, right? This project doesn't end where we left off. It continues to grow. In fact, I have some follow-up conversations to do when I hang up with you with some of the NGOs, which is making sure that um, we're still talking to them about partnerships and making sure that we're getting this app in the hands of the people who need it most,
2: it's really interesting to hear you talk about not basically it's the launch wasn't necessarily the end of this endeavor. There's still so many more aspects to it going down the line. And I obviously want to talk about what happens after launch, which is you go to Cannes and you ultimately win uh, the lion there. Tell me about what that experience was like. I'm sure, it, especially with all of the work that you just outlined and the, the sleepless nights and the long days, it has to be so validating on that angle.
3: Oh my God. So, so very validating. We knew we had something special. Um, it was a race to get to Can. It was a race to, quite frankly, get to launch to to capitalize on Parkinson's Disease Awareness Month as well. And I think, again, that team effort. You you are driven by adrenaline. And when we start to see the pieces come together, for instance, like when we finally got Apple to say yes, you know, you know, we threw a celebration. We're all excited. It was the adrenaline that kept us going. It was we knew that we needed. Um, to make it in with a really compelling and beautiful and yet simple story, which we did. And to be awarded by CAN was with the highest honor was unbelievable for all of us. We were blown away, super excited. Um, yes, there were a lot of sleepless nights to get there. In fact, I'll just tell you this quick story. I wasn't actually at CAN this year, <laughs> um, which was one of the years that I would have really should have and like to have been there, but was not there live, but watching the team literally um, play out the scenarios and the stories and watching them on stage. And I was getting blow by blows of what was happening um, in that room. Um, and, uh, or, and I should say in the theater, and it was like, I was there. Um, I had gone probably four six years prior to that, but I do miss having, not been there this year for this kind of a win. The team was amazing. And and this is another thing I learned. I think we are all so collaborative that we've given each other positive feedback to each other and given credit where credit is due. And we traveled together, we celebrated together, we produced together. We just, it was a, team dynamic, like I said, I've never had before. And I'd worked on some other pieces that were great. And it's not to say they weren't, it's just Whatever the dynamic was in the people, this one was 100% on the nose, right?
2: And I guess I'm kind of curious about that, too, given that you had such a lengthy career and this is such a crowning achievement in that sort of way. You know, what comes next? I know that there's obviously probably some pressure to say, oh, we just had this really, you know, validating experience with this project, but there are going to be others down the line. How do you carry that momentum or maybe these lessons learned into some of those other projects, whether or not it's even in the Parkinson space? I'm sure there are going to be other endeavors that you have to, to bring this to.
3: Yeah. And I think, you know, having like some of the other teams I have worked with, you know, if people weren't in it, you kind of felt and it's just maybe not because they weren't in it. Maybe it was other deadlines and other things happening. Um, And I think I take away that you have to set the stage right out of the gate of who your team is going to be and how you're going to function. And how you can 't function, so we know where the pitfalls are, right there will definitely be more innovative work. We are constantly innovating um, at Densu as a whole agency. We have stand ups all the time on innovation in the healthcare space, especially right Our team is equipped to lean into the larger network for some of those innovative concepts um, and ideas that are are bubbling up in fact, uh, Eduardo and I my My partner, um, we have a meeting set tomorrow to talk about some new ideas that are gonna come up for the Dentsu Creative Council uh, in October. And we'll bring those ideas forward. We'll talk about them as a group. We'll decide what goes forward, what doesn't. I think, you know, also in health, you are constantly looking for ways to make that customer journey or experience a smooth one, right? When you have such debilitating diseases like Parkinson's or MS any kind of technology that's going to make their lives better or a therapy or something like that, that propels you as well to go seek and find an answer. So there will be more innovative ideas coming. I think if anything, because I'm relatively still new to the agency a year and a half in, we all have such great momentum to move forward on any ideas that come our way. So I think, you know, we're ready bring on the next.
2: It sounds so encouraging, and I'm I'm obviously very excited to see what happens there. Uh, I've appreciated you being on the show, and we'll obviously share the insights of the process and what it was like winning at Can. I want to give you the final word in terms of maybe any parting thoughts to those in our audience, given that you you know are are kind of standing at the pedestal here with you know the entire industry watching. Anything anything else related to this project that you want them to know about?
3: Sure. I mean, like I always say this, I love what I do because the work that we do has the power to change lives. It really does. And and this is a perfect example. It's work like this that's shaping our industry. And I think digging deep into those insights of, of what patients are going through will lead to wonderful, beautiful ideas that ultimately will help that journey.
2: Awesome. Well, Coco, again, I really appreciate you being on the show here. Congrats again on the Thank lion. You. It's it's awesome to, be able to have an award winner on the show. And we look forward to everything that you and Dentsu are going to have coming down the line.
3: Great. Thank you so much. It was really nice meeting you.
1: Health
0: Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak.
1: In a long awaited move, the Biden administration has officially announced the launch of the new Office of Long COVID Research and Practice, which will lead the federal government's initiative to study and explore treatments for long COVID. The White House also announced that the National Institutes of Health is launching patient enrollment for its long COVID clinical trials. Congress originally set aside $1 billion in funds for the initiative in 2020. Health and Human Services Secretary Xavier Becerra said in a statement that, quote, it's crucial that we address the impact of long COVID and provide resources to those in need. Long COVID refers to a condition that affects some people who have been infected with the COVID-19 virus and is defined by several symptoms that can last for months, including severe fatigue, fever, difficulties breathing, or even neurological problems. About 7 million to 23 million Americans have developed long COVID, according to the HHS. The launch of the office and trials is a long time coming, as the NIH received some criticism for delaying the trials, which were originally supposed to launch last fall. One of those trials will examine whether taking Paxlovid for longer can help long COVID patients. Other trials will investigate brain fog treatments, as well as treatments for sleep issues and other symptoms. Next on the policy front, Republicans and Democrats in Congress are battling over how to address the drug shortage issue that has plagued the pharma industry for months. House Energy and Commerce Committee Chair Kathy McMorris-Rogers introduced a new Republican-led draft bill last week that would seek to give drug manufacturers more, quote, flexibility to respond to market pressures so they can invest in manufacturing and ramp up production when potential shortage situations arise. That bill comes shortly after Republicans blocked a Democrat-led effort to enact their own version of a drug shortage provision in the Pandemic and All-Hazards Preparedness Act reauthorization. Currently, there are numerous drugs in shortage on the FDA's list, from ADHD drugs to cancer drugs. Among them is semaglutide, the drug that's branded as popular diabetes medications, Ozempic and Wigovi. I'm Lesha Bushak, senior reporter at MMNM. Social media, Instagram. Instagram. TikTok. TikTok, Twitter, YouTube—social media update.
0: And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien to tell us what's
2: trending on healthcare social media. Hey, Jack. Hey, Mark. Like I said at the top, we had a few stories that didn't make the cut for this segment. Those include Madonna saying that she feels lucky to be alive after her ICU stint, an influencer who promoted a fruit-only diet who died at 39 from malnutrition. Oscar winner Judy Dench admitting that a degenerative eye condition has left her unable to read scripts or see on set. A woman who participated in the 75 hard challenge ending up in the hospital and a Denver Broncos wide receiver diagnosed with pericarditis. But we're going to start today with a story that Lesha wrote for the site about the hashtag fairy flying TikTok trend that has over 66 million views on the app and is raising concerns around self-harm. The trend starts off innocently enough with audio that says she was a fairy and people end up using an optical illusion to appear as though they're floating or flying like a fairy. These videos have gathered millions of likes with TikTokers trying different methods to make it appear as though they're floating in the air or dangling off an invisible string. The problem with this is that while it is an innocuous and fun origin, some experts are concerned that it may have a darker impact than expected on users. Upon first glance, viewers may be confused about the floating fairies, which can easily be mistaken for someone dangling off a rope or hanging. Dr. Josh Stein, a child and adolescent psychiatrist at Newport HealthCare's Prairie Care program, told the New York Post this week that the trend could potentially be triggering for some people who struggle with suicidal ideation. TikTok is the platform of choice for Gen Z when it comes to conversations around numerous aspects of their health, including mental health. With a plethora of influencers and countless mental health trends, TikTok has the potential to be both a positive environment to discuss mental health issues openly and change stigma, but also holds the risk of encouraging damaging, risky, or self-harm behaviors. In a study published by the Center for Countering Digital Hate in December, researchers found that TikTok began recommending content involving eating disorders and self-harm to 13-year-olds within half an hour of them joining the platform. TikTok has argued that it does not allow such content Saying under its suicide and self harm section of the website, "quote We do not allow content depicting, promoting, normalizing, or glorifying activities that could lead to suicide or self harm." The company has not yet commented on the fairy flying trend, and it doesn't appear the platform has taken any action against the videos featuring the hashtag #FlyingFairy. Lesha, you wrote this story, and I'm I'm interested in. The fact that a lot of the times that we've talked about the risks of being on social media, it's usually something so blatant and obvious. But this is kind of more of a a gray area when it comes to, yeah, there's the potential for self-harm. But at the other end, it's just people trying to have fun with an optical illusion.
1: Right. And, you know, as TikTok has stated in its uh, section on self-harm, they are going to be banning like really blatant uh content that is you know linked to self-harm or suicide or other problematic things um but as you mentioned this flying fairy trend is definitely in a bit of a gray zone because you know the vast majority of of people who are taking part in it or, or seeing the videos are kind of in on the on the joke you know like they're they're aware that it's uh kind of a fun Uh, silly, whimsical kind of trend. But for an outsider who isn't in on it, it can definitely be a little confusing and kind of scary (laughs) and potentially triggering. And I imagine there's a lot of other videos and and trends on TikTok that kind of fall into this gray zone where they're not blatantly espousing self-harm or suicide, but they can be triggering to some people. So you know, right now TikTok doesn't seem to really have anything in place for those kind of gray area content. But for now, it seems uh, hopefully most people who, who come across the flying fairy trend uh, sort, of, sort of know what it is.
0: And, and yeah, it's, um, it does seem, you know, innocuous uh, at first glance, but uh, for those who are prone to suicidal thoughts or tendencies, they can, you know, mistake it for someone dangling off a rope or hanging. And I guess that's the call that TikTok's self harm department, or their department of uh, of content moderation, that the, that's the call that they need to make, I guess, in consultation with experts. I'm not sure how they do that sort of thing. I thought that upon learning of this trend in your piece, that it seemed pretty innocuous, especially when you compare it to the kind of content, um, that was pushed to, in in the study that you referenced, um, from the center for digital harm, you know, the content that was pushed to the, to the vulnerable account. And that study was much more, you know, uh, openly insinuating, you know, attempted suicide and that kind of thing. Uh, um. as opposed to, to that in the study, you know, this this seems like it's a little bit more in, in the gray area. Um, what I will be interested in seeing is um, that as 60 Minutes reported, um, that about 1,200 families are, are pursuing lawsuits against TikTok and other social media companies for just this sort of thing. Um, and, you know, whether that uh, threat of lawsuit that's, that's now been followed through on will make them any more likely uh, to uh, be a little bit more aggressive in, in their uh, content moderation and how they label this kind of content.
2: Yeah, Mark, you talk about it from the angle of you know, kind of involving big tech in you know online safety for adolescents and young users, and also the mental health stuff that Lesha has reported on, you know, extensively over the past few months, where these children are exposed to such graphic and unwarranted things, this is really on the lighter side of it all, but you can definitely see where if somebody is impressionable and they see something like that, it can be triggering. And I know Lesha incorporated that into her piece where users were saying like, oh, it took me back for a second and not everyone has had the same experience online, the same life experiences. And even if something as innocent as that could probably you know, set somebody off or make somebody uncomfortable. So it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out and figuring into the larger dynamics at play as it relates to big tech, healthcare and and the responsibility of being online. Absolutely. What do you got next for us, Jack? So Lesha had mentioned kind of being in on the joke in the last segment, and this one is very much being in on the joke. And we're gonna start on a on a heavy note, but then kind of go into you know where the story goes. Last week we had talked about the cardiac arrest suffered by Bronny James, the son of LeBron James, who's recovering after that abrupt medical incident. And in the course of researching what happened and looking at how the story was being reported in mainstream news outlets and online, it became clear to me that there's a frequent refrain in the comment section anytime a young person dies or suddenly collapses, which is users going on there and saying, vaccine or vaccinated or making some sort of reference to the COVID-19 vaccine. And that's the case where you talk about Bronny James, DeMar Hamlin after he collapsed on Monday Night Football from cardiac arrest, or ESPN soccer analyst Shaka Hislop, who fainted on live TV last week. People just flood the comment section blaming these instances on the COVID-19 vaccine, using emojis of syringes, talking about the jab. And that's nothing new. That's been on, you know, the case even before COVID nineteen in terms of blaming vaccines. But it's definitely emboldened, I would say, more of these users to constantly reference the vaccine and and ask, you know, frame in the context of asking questions. What that has prompted in return is people mocking the anti vaxxer community using their own. Uh, sort of lingo or questioning of events. And I know a few months ago, we had talked about people on TikTok primarily, you know, dancing or using funny gesticulations and saying, oh, this is what happened after I got my booster shot or something. But now people are looking at calamities, whether they're natural disasters or something else, completely unrelated to the COVID-19 vaccine, and in a bit of dark humor, blaming it on the COVID vaccine. And such instances that I've seen just perusing online have been the implosion of the Titan submersible, the collapse of a crane in midtown Manhattan, a natural gas pipeline explosion in Virginia, a dismembered crypto Currency influencer, and even uh, Jesus and President Abraham Lincoln. And people just saying, like, oh, vaccinated, was this because of the vaccine? You know, was it related? And obviously, they're making a tongue in cheek joke, but they're trying to use the language of the anti vaxxer community against them, kind of, you know, fighting fire with fire, if you will. Whether that's in good taste or effective or just a part of being maybe too online, I think is up for debate. But it certainly caught my eye last week after the unfortunate news came out about uh, Bronnie James.
0: It's it's a good observation, Jack, you know, one, one story leads to another. It's a tasteless way to, you know, make your argument, but if that's the way you want to go about using Twitter or other social platform to discredit, um, you know, anti-vaxxers, if that's your thing, Hey, more power to you.
1: I just want to throw out one thing that I, I briefly brought up the last time we, we talked about this issue. Um, but just to provide some context on these, these kind of claims linking the vaccine to uh, these sudden cardiac arrests, um, you know even just preliminary Google search and looking at, at a few studies, and the Cleveland Clinic has a, a page specifically dedicated to cardiac arrests in athletes. There's been researchers studying this link for years, why young athletes, Tend to uh, it's rare, but it does happen. Why young athletes can sometimes experience a cardiac arrest while they're playing uh, a game or uh, during practice, and it's usually a number of factors. It could be a situation where they do have a structurally normal heart, but then it's placed under a certain level of pressure, or there's an undetected like heart defect or condition that um, wasn't diagnosed. That kind of comes out when you know they're under a lot of extreme pressure um, when they're exercising. So there is a lot of research uh, going into this link and it, it all predates the vaccine. So I just wanted to throw out that context as well.
2: I said one more thing I wanted to tie in just with, uh- Lesha talking about the, the years of research that have gone into this, and obviously this not being a new phenomenon with younger athletes experiencing you know, cardiac issues. It's just been heightened by the, the anti-vaxxer um, campaigns against the COVID-19 vaccine. And the, the, the cry or the refrain that we always hear is, do your own research, you know, don't be brainwashed, do your own research. And to Lesha's point, there are decades of research behind this specific issue, and that conveniently doesn't come up in these conversations. It's always, well, it, it must be Moderna, it must be Johnson and Johnson, and so just to just to put a bow on what Lesh has brought up there, you know, do your own research does involve going to peer-reviewed journals and and looking at the research as it stands. This third item is probably one of the stranger things that we've ever talked about on this show. And it comes from another piece that Lesha wrote for the site about a social media trend in which moms are lifting their newborns out of their wombs during C-sections. A recent trend, the practice is dubbed maternal assisted cesarean, MAC for short, and it's offered by obstetricians who claim they want women to feel more empowered during their C-sections. Still, questions remain about whether this type of procedure is safe, and multiple medical experts have cautioned against it. In a recent Instagram post, a birth and postpartum doula showed a video in which a mother pulls her baby out of the womb in the midst of a C-section. Bringing life into the world via cesarean section is every bit as awesome as giving birth any other way, she wrote. Who says it can't be empowering? Hashtag birth is birth and let no one tell you any different. Few hospitals and healthcare organizations have weighed in on the safety of MACs, but some birthing organizations, including Empowered Motherhood Program, have written blogs espousing the procedure. MAC advocates claim that traditional C-sections prevent immediate mother-to-infant bonding. Other obstetricians and health systems have opposed the procedure. In 2021, the Western Australia Country Health Service noted that it had seen an increase in requests for MACs and stated that it does not support the procedure. In a memo, the organization stated there simply isn't enough scientific evidence attesting to its safety. And despite their popularity online, MACs remain relatively uncommon, but it hasn't stopped advocates and mothers from posting their own stories on TikTok, usually under the hashtags doulas of TikTok or birth workers. I think there's a lot of questions that get raised in this one. Lesha, I want to throw it to you since you wrote the story. You know, there's questions about community standards on TikTok and whether, I mean, on Instagram and whether that violates that. There's questions about the safety of the infant, safety of the mother. You know, what, what are your thoughts on, on reporting this?
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I had, uh, done a previous story on the free births of TikTok, which is slightly different, but it's essentially women who refuse medical assistance during birth and they want to give birth at home in bathtubs and their living rooms. Um, and it's a very controversial, uh, community. Um, you know, a lot of medical experts say that's very dangerous to do that without some medical assistance. Um, and MACs is a little different um, because there are some obstetricians and some uh, clinics that are offering it, um, and I guess the advocates argue that it's positive for both the mother and child because it, like in a traditional C-section, uh, the immediate skin-to-skin, mother-to-child bonding doesn't happen, um, whereas in this one, the MAC, that can happen, and it is. "Quote unquote," empowering for the mother. Um, you know, some of them have described it as being a wonderful experience, but there is also obviously these risks of uh, infection. You know, risks of something going wrong. That because of those risks, it's not really a commonly accepted procedure. It's not standard at the vast majority of healthcare clinics and, and hospitals at the moment, but it is seemingly gaining popularity.
0: Yeah, and no, I was also a little bit initially, obviously, surprised by this one. But when the more I looked into it, um, you know, I, I read the account on the uh, on the Australian Birthing Center's website, and you know, I thought, well, maybe it's you know, this is something that's sort of confined to uh, outside the U.S. at this point. But then I found another site in Minnesota that actually had a patient story on there where there was a mother who she had been interested in this. She knew this was going to be the last child that she gave birth to and she found an OB that was willing to do it. Uh, the OB initially wasn't familiar with the procedure, but the more that they looked into it, they felt that they could mitigate those risks, which as you say, Lesha, include, um, you know, the, the bleeding and the, and the mother's hands in the sterile field um, and uh, that they felt that they could manage that risk and, and honor the mother's wishes. And, uh you know not to get too graphic, but the mother also had some kind of medical condition where even though she had regular some other other children before this um, she wasn 't able to give birth in in the conventional way, so she needed to do a c section, but she wanted to do it in, a, in an m a c and the the day that she was that she went into labor it turns out that the OB was not on duty, they were on vacation and this mother uh, appealed to, to the OB and and the whole team came back in from vacation just to help this mother have a, a maternal assisted cesarean section. And and it, it gave the, the OB, I think, a lot of joy to be able to honor this mother's wishes and to to work with them and, and take them out of their comfort zone a little bit. Um, so, you know, this thing just does seem to be on the fringe. It's a little unnerving to those of us that uh, kind of grew up with, with me- Western medicine and sterility and all that, that are kind of pillars of, of medicine, but um, honoring the patient experience uh, seems seems to be a priority for for some HCPs. so it'll be interesting to see whether it gets more widely adopted uh, on these shores
2: yeah, and you talk about that balancing act between you know honoring the patient experience and wanting them to you know have a fulfilling time there, but also the st- sterility issues we 've obviously covered in the past, the maternal mortality rate in this country is uh, well behind some other advanced nations too, so it 's one of those things where on the fringes gaining popularity but how safe is it really for both the mother and infant what sort of responsibility do you know HCPs and healthcare organizations have in terms of offering or you know at least accepting those requests it'll be interesting to see how it plays out in the future i'm not i don't have a good read on on whether one way or another how it shakes out yeah, the, the it's a great point, Jack. In terms of and I know Lesha you brought this this up as well. We were talking
0: about this offline that the maternal death rate has doubled in this country, uh, according to recent research. Uh, and so I, I I'm sure that uh, you know we're not going to see an abundance of policy statements by the you know medical associations condoning this procedure uh, anytime soon. But uh, we'll have a continuation on this theme, not the maternal uh, cesarean section theme, but on the doubling of uh, maternal deaths and some
2: efforts to address that on next next week's podcast so stay tuned for that and that's what we call ending the show with a teaser that's right
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's it for this week the MMM podcast is produced by bill fitzpatrick gordon Failer, lesha bushak and jack o'brien our theme music is by M. Sohn. rate review and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts new episodes out every week and be sure to check out our website mm onlinecom for the top news stories in pharma marketing